I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. This is part two, the final episode with Alexandra. We pick up where we left off last time, with the abuser intimidating her and finding various ways to wear her down. He kept machetes in our apartment, and they were for hunting, is what he said. But I wonder if they were like actually an intimidation factor or something he was going to use. I'm going to guess they are what you just said. They're for intimidation. I spoke with a woman recently in an episode, and this guy got a gun. And he would go through a version of cleaning it every evening. You sit at the kitchen table, you take it apart, take all the bullets out of the clip, be wiping the gun down, put all the bullets back in the clip and put it there and click, click, click and all that and take his good old time while she's sitting in the other room. And uh, it's pretty obvious who the boss is as long as he's got that thing. Exactly. And it, you know, the way they abuse isn't always through words and physical actions. It can, it's mental warfare too. So my life was just chaos. It Mm -hmm. was just depressing. I actually forgot about this too. I was working another side job because I worked a lot and I was working at a gym part-time and he would show up to the gym when I was working there and just come and hang out and just talk random stuff with the people who worked there. No one there actually saw too many red flags about him, which is interesting because I think he was able to like show himself in a good light. Yeah, I couldn't even go to work without him showing up there. So he just became... In my life, obsessively. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I stopped working out, and I remember if we worked out, we used to walk, and this was so odd to me, we used to walk three or four miles every night, maybe more. And it would just be like this aimless, like walking. It wouldn't even necessarily be like to work out. And I don't, there was a reason he was doing it. I don't know if he was trying to not be on drugs, but like every night, four or five miles just throughout the city of Atlanta it was just odd, even working out. And that way, he had to be with me. So, I basically felt trapped. I think I was loved him and I thought this is what love was, that you're supposed to be there for someone. It doesn't really matter how they act, that love should be unconditional and that I was there to save him and I needed to protect him. I almost felt like if I wasn't there, then he was just going to destroy himself. But all through that time, he was destroying me and definitely like would go through, through the days of just putting me down and you know, I just saw myself change. I wasn't this strong, confident woman anymore. I really would crumble underneath him. I would get scared. And, you know, I think I would tell him I was scared. So it was just like not a fun way to live. This just went on. I think we were together eight months, maybe nine months. So it was a really short time. And I listen to your podcast a lot. And there's always that moment people hit their rock bottom and they have that aha moment. I do believe sometimes people are put into your life for a reason. And I remember sitting at this job that I hate it. And there was a new woman who had started. And I, for some reason, opened up to her about what was going on. And I didn't really know her. But I remember sitting in this shared office space. And it was just the two of us and telling her. And she said to me, would you rather have the promise of the life you have now or hope that you could have a better life? 
and it hit me. And I was like, wait, life could be better than this. Oh, gee. And I, I said to myself, uh, he's going to pay me back. He, at that point, he owed me thousands of dollars. I said, he's going to pay me back something or I'm done with him. And I don't know. I think in some ways I stayed with him for the money too, just hoping he would pay me back because I was just getting myself into worse and worse debt. I remember texting and calling him and saying, hey, you owe me this much money. If I don't have it, then you're out. He went crazy. He went to, I'm going to get it for you. I don't have it. I'm disappearing. I threw my, I don't even know how he told me this. I have someone else's phone and I threw my phone in the bushes. Just like he went absolutely. And I called my parents and I said, I'm, I'm ready to be done with him. Your mother must have loved that. I think she did, but I think she was scared too about how I get out of it. And so he still was trying to keep me though. And I remember saying like, I think you have a drug addiction. I think you're not done doing the drugs. Your behavior doesn't add up. Money's missing. You know, it's all starting to come together in my head. I said, your options are you need to pay me back now, or you need to pass a drug test. Let me go back. So he didn't have the money, but he's like, I'll get it for you. I was like, well, I think you're on drugs. Like you need to go to treatment. Okay, I'll go take me to the emergency room. I don't know how that works. And, you know, now that I'm saying that there were a few times he would go to the emergency room because he was in so much pain. And then he wouldn't want me to go back with him. Well, obviously he was trying to get drugs. This time I took him to the emergency room and I said, you tell them what you want. And he's like, no, I don't want to go. I said, well, then we're done. And he kept calling me his girlfriend. I was like, I'm not his girlfriend anymore. We broke up. Like I started, I think really being adamant. You're not the person I want to be with. And my dad came over and we had him take a drug test to try to prove that he was not on drugs. And he tested positive for every single drug imaginable. And you're just like, how are you doing that in your system right now? And I was able to get his sister to drive down and come pick him up. I remember telling him after I took him to the hospital, telling him he had to walk back to my house because I wasn't going to let him in the car with me. And I wasn't going to let him in the apartment with me. And he had to wait outside. So I started having a little bit of that. I'm ready to be done. And I felt like as I took back my power, He scrambled, of course, but he realized he didn't really have the power. Good. But unfortunately, the story wasn't over then. You know, I was done with him. I changed my locks. You know, he got picked up by his sister. She dropped him off at rehab. And then I went to my parents and stayed with my parents for a week or two. I had a friend come stay with me for a while when I came back to my apartment. But he started stalking me. And I think that's what's really hard is you might be done with the relationship, but that person's not necessarily out of your life. Give me some idea what the stalking looked like. Like, how did you pick up on that? It was a few things because a lot of it now in today's world is through technology, but I think he just incessantly called me right after we broke up and I would talk about, you can't do this. You have to stop. So I remember telling him, I don't want to hear from you again. Like I'm done with you. Please stop contacting me. And then I started still getting phone calls and I just went answer. He started calling my mom. He would say stuff like, well, is it okay if I go to this Chick-fil-A near your parents' house? And I wasn't answering, but he was calling my mom. My mom's like, can you, I mean, just weird stuff. And I remember uh, maybe a week or two after I went out for dinner with my friend, with my friend to like a local place near my house. And he's there with a girl. Like he walks in with a girl and you're just like, that was a place though he and I used to go. Uh-huh. And so I don't know if he necessarily knew I was going to be there that night, but it was just odd. Like we're in the city of Atlanta. There's tons of restaurants. Why are you here? Mm. Um, the next day I got an email from him telling me that I was a horrible person, that we both live in the city. And so he's going to be dating. And I made that girl really uncomfortable. Mm. 
what's funny is I remember I said earlier to you, Bill, that he would morph himself into different people. I think he did not even look like the same person. Two weeks later, he looked like a totally different person, whereas I almost didn't recognize him. Wow. What did he do? It's like his hair was different. His clothes were different. The way he carried himself was different. It's like very much like an actor. Oh, and oh that's really, uh, that's an interesting chapter. Wow. Yeah, I would say he was probably a lot more clean cut with me and then he just morphed himself. And so he's like sending me emails that I'm a horrible person. I think throughout this time, he he was also sending a bunch of texts about how I think this was after we broke up. So all this stuff runs together because it's all within a few weeks. But I remember he said, don't come back to the apartment. And this is the first when I broke up with him. Now I'm thinking it all comes back to you. But when I broke up with him and hadn't got his sister to pick him up yet. So this was before the drug test and everything he said don't come to your apartment I don't want you to see what's you know I'm gonna kill myself I don't want you to have to find me this way there's gonna be blood everywhere and then he wouldn't answer me right so I'm just like oh my god he's killing himself he's dead it's all my fault so it was more suicide attempts um and then he would just or or at least talking about it talking about it yeah not attempts talking about it um I mean that's the point of it that's the whole point of terror Mm-hmm. And that continued even when we were broken up and I wasn't answering his calls is right. I would block a number and I would get a call from a different number and a different number. So it, you couldn't block all the numbers. Well, you can buy a burner for like next to nothing at Walmart and mm-hmm. just keep on calling. And you, know? you can do all those Google numbers too. And so you can create a Google number and I can't block that. So it was just, I mean, at one point I had to have had like a hundred numbers blocked on my phone. It would just be messages of, do you want to hook up to, this is, this is Taylor's friend. I just want to let you know he killed himself. I mean, just nonstop, constant, constant. Mm. I eventually did get a new phone number. And I think that was a really hard thing for me to do because I felt like that was me giving up something else for him. Yes, of course. And to be honest, it was freeing once I gave up my number, but it was really hard. And that was the only way I could get him to stop contacting me, but I would still get messages on Instagram from different accounts where you're like, I'm pretty sure this is you. And then I remember telling my neighbors, and this was interesting, but I told my neighbors what was going on. I told almost all my neighbors. We lived in this garden apartment. There were maybe like 16 apartments. And when I was telling them, the woman above me was like, oh, I was in an abusive relationship. Another one of my neighbors told me that his sister died from an abusive relationship. Another one told me that she moved to that apartment trying to escape and the guy followed her. And so she had to tell everyone at the apartment, like, don't let this guy in. So it was just this weird group of people. And you realized how common it was that we all experienced it together. And so they did keep an eye out for me. I think that made me feel better. But I found out later, I ran into one of my neighbors who I hadn't told. She's the one who lived next door to me. And she goes, he showed up at our apartment a couple weeks ago. Uh And he said Uh that... He needed a place to stay, and we let him stay there, and he told me that he was letting you live in the apartment, but it was he was paying the rent still, that it was all his stuff in there. None of this is true. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about how he's so great, and even though I broke up with him, and they were like, we were so uncomfortable with him. So he had been there while I was there, Uh, and that's like very creepy, and I I think I'm thankful I didn't run into him. But it got to the point where my grandfather was wanting to buy me a condo and get me out of there. He didn't like that. I was still living where I was living. You know, I think my dad, my mom was really worried about me as well. I eventually moved back in with my parents and I think it was a combo of stuff, but I did move back with my parents for about seven months and I think they felt safer 
yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was really hard after the fact too, because it didn't go away for a long time. We would randomly see him places too. My mom would be like, I just saw him at this intersection. I think I heard he moved in with another okay. girl with my name mm. shortly after we broke up, but I don't think he lasted long with her, but moved in with her almost immediately. And she was very similar to me. Just like, I think the way we were raised, I wouldn't say necessarily looks, but like we were from the same area. We had like some friends that over or acquaintances that overlapped. I've heard of instances where somebody eventually gets loose from one of these guys and then he finds somebody who's almost a replica. I've heard that too. Yeah. I think he would, he would change up the girl a little bit because he changed himself, but it was a long time of just being scared of you not knowing when he was going to show up. And, you know, some, two other things happened. I think when I was breaking up with him that I forgot, we had opened a bank account together, but one of those other moments of, I didn't put money in it because I, I didn't trust him, but I was thinking this could be for household. You can put our rent into it. But who put who then put money in there? I think we like maybe I put a hundred dollars in to open that account, but like I didn't just put, get it started. To just yeah. get it started. But it was going to be where we put in our rent money and it never happened. Um yes. and the bank called me and said, Your account's been overdrafted. Someone signed your name and I don't think it was you. Uh-huh. They and it's like looking back, I think they were suspicious of this guy when we came into the bank. But the bank called me which I think happened the same day I was telling, you know, everything kind of happens all at once, but I was telling the woman that, you know, I, about the situation and she's like, you need to get out pretty much. And I went to the police, I remember and saying, Hey, this person committed fraud on me. They weren't much of a help. And I think that was hard because you think, Oh, I'm supposed to go to the police and here I am finally going to them. And they're just like, we can't do anything. It's your word against his word. You have to have real evidence. Yeah. It can't be your your opinion. Yeah. And a lot of evidence. And I think that goes back to I had actually Googled him while we were early dating and I saw that he had check fraud against him and I confronted him about it. It was with his ex girlfriend and he said, Oh, my ex girlfriend and I were on a joint account and her mom was ended up being mad when we broke up because I was taking money out of the joint account. So she told me it was fraud. But I think it turns out the weekend he disappeared when he owed me money, he was actually in court. He was going to court that Monday. And then another thing too with him was, oh, another, another reason I think I really struggled with the stalking after the fact, because I remember my mom was like, you need to go get like a PTO. And I was like, absolutely not. And I remember with work when I was working for the court system, going into a domestic violence PTO hearing. And I heard four different stories. And they were trying to get permanent restraining orders. And I watched these women face their abusers in court. And only one out of the four was granted a permanent restraining order. Oh, how bad is that, right? It's so bad. And you're just watching how scared they are and how strong they are that they're even going up in front of their person uh, uh. that was their abuser. And I was like, I don't trust that. I don't trust that. You know, and so I shouldn't, you shouldn't, I'm not big on the PTOs. No, me either. That's what I said. It's just a piece of paper and does it make them more mad? And do I have to face them? Yeah. Somebody very wisely said on this uh, podcast that it's, it's a piece of paper. It's not a shield. Exactly. And it's, and I've heard you say on the podcast too, but it's like, does it bring more attention to the situation for the perpetrator? I think when you go in front, like even to get the temporary one to go in front of a judge and rat out somebody and say, this is what's going on. And then when that person gets the order and it's like, oh, really? So, so we have this relationship, which used to be nice. And then you're going into a courtroom to a judge. So you're actually putting my name before the law. 
and you know and I know that you're not a saint in this story. But on the other hand, my name is the one that's on the piece of paper. And you did that to me. I was worried about what he would say about me, like you said. It's like, what are you going to come out and say about me if it's true or not true? And yeah, it doesn't have to be true. Yeah, and I feel like I had a job. I had, I didn't want that to be gone. And, you know, I think it was just like getting out was just as hard too. It was relieving, but it was really scary. And it was really hard because he didn't leave me alone. It wasn't just this easy thing. And I, and I found that he was dating someone back in his hometown. And, you know, I feel bad because it was a relief to me. I'm thinking he's probably doing it to her too. I think they have two kids together. And you're just like, no oh, way gee. he's changed. No way he's changed. But I, I'd rather it be her than me. It's a tough thing. It is tough. And it's like, I feel bad wishing that on someone else. It's not that I wish it on her, but I was just relieved because that's when he finally stopped for the most part trying to get in touch with me. His focus was on someone else now. Exactly. And I think there's... His time was being split. Yeah. I mean, and there's just so many other stories, you know, talking about this that pop up, even trying to get his stuff out of my house. So he wouldn't come back and say, I remember he actually told me, it doesn't matter that my name's on the lease. I've been getting mail here for a certain amount of time. So you'll have to evict me if you want me out. And these were some of the reasons I think breaking up with him took longer is I would say, you need to get out. And he'd be like, you can't, you're going to have to evict me. And he left all his stuff when I, when I finally did break up with him and changed the lock. And my mom was like, we're getting his stuff out of your house because we can't have that here. We can't have him have a reason. Mm -hmm. And we tried to drop it off at his parents' house. And his mom said, I don't want to deal with this at all. I have, I have no desire to deal with this. And my mom goes, okay, we're going to go to the police. We're going to make sure there's no warrants or anything on him, like anything we need to be aware of about like safety. And the police officer up there told us, you know, there's nothing on him right now, but if you drove all the way up here, I wouldn't leave without getting rid of that stuff. And I remember we dropped it in front of his parents' house across the thing. And my mom and I are just going as fast as possible, oh, getting man. everything out, including the machetes, just getting oh. everything out of our car. And then he, you know, I blocked him where I had a new number by then, but he called my mom and just he went off, went off on my mom for how rude. Why would you leave that stuff while you're trying to involve my mom? And another thing that happened, Bill, is... His dad actually, and this is true, got diagnosed with brain cancer towards the end of a relationship, which I think delayed me breaking up with him a little longer because his dad went to like ICU and, you know, that I think kept me in a little longer too because I'm like, you're going through this. It was hard for me to break up with him knowing he was going through that. His dad ended up passing away. And even through that situation, you saw like his grandmother being like, he and his grandmother get into a fight and I think it's because she saw through him. Mm -hmm. Like the whole family kind of saw through him. It was weird kind of being that girl where they all were looking at like, why is this girl here? You know, they didn't really talk to me. I think they were didn't know what to do with me. And after the fact, I remember calling this tying some things back in. But I remember calling his uncle who he worked for. And the guy was like, I'm not his uncle at all like that. He And he had the stories, like you said, is why he was pocketing me is not wanting to hear this. He's like, that guy didn't show up to work. I mean, he told me all these things and he told me some of the best advice. He said, you should not commit to someone in marriage unless you've been through four seasons with them. And I think oh, that is really helpful. That? You're able to see what they're like throughout the year, through stress, through happy times. Now, are those metaphorical seasons or real ones, do you think? I think it might be real ones, actually, now that you say that. I think I thought of oh, them okay. as metaphorical, but like going through a full year with someone. But I think you need to be able to see different sides of them. And, you know, one thing I didn't mention is he kept trying to get me to marry him. He never, he never actually proposed, but we looked at rings and he would just be like, well, we could just elope. 
We could do this. We could do that. I'm like, you are not. Yeah, he's trying to trying to go fast. Yeah. Told me he had a vasectomy. And, and yet, and yet had children later. Yeah. Yet had children later. And so I, you know, I'm very thankful that I was not pregnant with yes. his, with his child, but you know, there were just lies just scattered throughout. It's just kind of amazing. You know, it's, you know, you putting them all out, you know, within an hour, it, you can see the red flag, but throughout the time it was just, they all just would like build upon each other that it was hard for me to see it. And I remember asking his mom like did he even love me and I don't know why that was important to me because obviously he didn't love me and she's like no he did and I was like I don't I don't know why maybe it's still more worth going through if he actually loved me and she said or maybe I asked his sister I said why didn't y'all tell me and she goes we were hoping you would change him oh that I, that's not a new thought I know and I, I I have a lot of resentment I know that's a family and they love their child but to knowingly allow someone to go through this and not to give me a heads up about what's going on they're afraid you'd turn and run yeah <laughs> and maybe I would have but yes. yeah I never felt fully part of that family but it was interesting because you know his grandparents were so nice his parents were nice they were just like we, we were hoping you would be the one to save them you were the one to actually change them didn't happen didn't happen probably still hadn't happened with him no I don't think so and and I've talked to other women who've been through similar situations and they too check up on their abusers and I don't really know where that comes from. I don't know if it's a curiosity of did they change for someone else or someone I think it's a safety thing for me. It's like, I want to make sure you're not anywhere close to me. I think that's very wise. Yeah. That's a good investment. I'd probably do that every year mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Just for safety, just for peace of mind. There's a woman I interviewed recently who's been broken up with this guy, I think about 30 years. And he still goes by her house and revs his motorcycle, puts it in neutral and revs it up a few times as he goes by. Now, he's almost 60, so this happened when they're in their 20s that they dated, and this guy still comes by, and she's been married and has had a full life during those 30 years, but he's still thinking about her. That's what I think is the fear, and for a while, I had social media on lockdown and wasn't very public. But at one point you do start living your life. You know, I think the healing process through this has been very interesting. I had someone tell me, you can't really practice what you learn from these situations until you're in another relationship. And so I actually for, I think I was single for five years after him and very much went to the idea of, I'm not going to let anyone in. I don't care. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like other abusers can sniff it out. Because I met someone through a friend shortly after dating him, and he had so many red flags, but we never got serious. I saw the red flags, and I ended it. I felt like for a long while, though, I did not make the best decision in men, but I never fully committed to them either. I didn't go to therapy for the longest time, but I started hitting a few years after breaking up with him. I started hitting, might have been like one or two, really like a rock bottom and just feeling like my whole life I was still suffering financially. You know, I'd never been really bullied before and I was bullied at my job. And I think a lot of that was I was just like a shell of a person. I think I was probably an easy target. I was trying to buy a condo. It fell through the day before. It's just like my whole life felt like it was just crumbling. Yeah. Nothing's really working now. Yeah. Nothing's working. And so you're thinking, I went through all this and that might have only been nine months of my life, but it's taking over years of my life. And I ended up losing my job and, you know, some things there's silver lining in. And I moved up to 
Northern Virginia and came back to a company I'd worked out in my early 20s and really had a fresh start. And I think that was needed. And I then got into a relationship finally, which was really hard. And we started dating a few months before COVID, but then I started therapy and I've been in therapy now three years. And I, I don't think I was ready for the therapy right after the relationship. I think I needed some time away to really get into the healing process. So it's been a journey. It's been eight years now and I'm still healing for a minute and I still have triggers from it. You know, I see people who look like him and it freaks me out or we were watching, my boyfriend and I were watching something and they were in the town that this, that Taylor lived in. And I saw the grocery store we used to go with, with him. I said, you have to turn this off. I can't watch this. How about that? You know? And so I'm sure it's hard for my significant other now, but it's, it's a continuous healing process. Someone asked me once what it was like at this point. My daughter's been gone for 18 years. You know what it's like. And I said, it would be like if you had an arm amputated. You notice it. You see it. You work around it. And you just kind of adapt. But you're always reminded that you had this thing happen and you lost something that used to be a big part of your life. So, yeah. That's actually a really good analogy. I haven't heard someone say that makes a lot of sense. You still have your life. You still do stuff, but you can't do it the way you used to do it. And and I think that everybody's different handling tragedies and abuse and all these things. But I feel like you can let it get you or you can go get it. And I think that if you use it as energy to do good, I think that, that that's probably, if you had a choice, that's the way to go. I mean, one of the things I learned pretty early was the best way to help me was helping other people. Afterwards, I'd always feel better about me. And it's like, well, you know, that was a good thing you did. And, and I sort of look for those good Samaritan moments. I do the podcast for probably about 20 or 30 reasons if I were to really sit down with a piece of paper. It keeps me closer to my daughter, who I haven't seen for a long, long time. And I see in people like you, I see a lot of what I think she went through. I think you hit and I think it is a legacy for your daughter because I think giving individuals a platform to share their story is really powerful. And one thing I do remember from getting out of that relationship is I wasn't going to hide what happened to me. That's big. And I was going to work very hard not to be ashamed of it. And I think it was hard for my parents to hear me talk about it or to hear me say I was a survivor because I feel like they felt I was almost idolizing what happened to me. And really, I was wanting to share what happened for my own therapy. But also, I think it helped other women not feel as alone. And I think by no means am I happy this happened to me, but I did take stuff from the experiences. And I was very open and I continue to be open about what has happened to me. And I think I've had certain people who had the mindset of, well, you're you're this or that if you get an abusive relationship. You know, the whole I would never get an abusive relationship. I remember it was actually that, what was it called? The podcast about John, I'm blanking on the name now, but where it became like a really popular podcast where he was an abuser and the woman like owned her own business and she was a mom and she was really smart. But we were listening to that, a bunch of us girls. And I remember one of my friends said, yeah, I'm just really surprised that happened to her. You got to be kind of dumb for that to happen to you. And this is a woman saying this. And I said, you know, that happened to me too. And you don't have to be dumb. It's common, you know, and I felt it was an education period for her because she's thinking, well, you're my friend and this happened to you. And I don't think all these negative things about you. The even bigger thing is I had other women share their stories with me. 
I've had friends come to me with what have happened to them because they feel comfortable because they know I was so honest and I've been able to maybe help guide them into their next steps or guide them that you shouldn't be going through this and this is why, but in a very non-judgmental way or have them actually, I have one friend who actually started therapy from a lot of the stuff she's been through. And I think it's an open, honest relationship where they have someone where isn't judging them. They don't feel alone. And also I can understand, you know, I worry sometimes about the trauma bonding between it because you meet a woman who's gone through it and there is an automatic connection. There's some preventive messages where hopefully these people can see the red flags before it gets too late and actually act on the red flags and not think that they're just being judgy. But I think the other thing is once women get out of it, really helping them heal as well. Like you're not alone, you're not dumb, and there's different steps you can do in your healing process. I've kind of run the gamut from talk therapy to Eastern energy healing, but I've had to really find what works for me. And, you know, after the fact, I was not the best person looking back. There was a lot of anxiety through my healing and really reflecting on my experience and, and the PTSD I, I was diagnosed from it. I've become a better person through it all. I think I'm a much, a lot less judgmental, a lot more open to people, but I do still have that guard up. You know, I don't know if that guard will ever go away. I think it's good to keep it up to tell you the truth. There's so much you've learned from this experience. You're right. I mean, they can listen to stories like yours and it doesn't take a great imagination to see how these red flags can be detected and therefore get loose from that relationship early on, you know, mm -hmm. and try not to be fooled into things. Look, we all want the beginnings of all these stories, it seems. I mean, it's just, wow, this person presents well. This person brings the goodies. You know, this person does stuff, buys stuff, maybe, not always, mm -hmm. but but there's certain aspects that you think, this is a big upgrade from what I'm used to. I've been waiting for this person. Like you said, in college, you may have seen these people before walking around the campus and they never noticed you. And all of a sudden, this guy seems like he's kind of a page right out of that. But this guy actually is paying attention and this is great. And then as time goes on, the red flags come and you don't really look at them. We're asking people to really look at them. I mean, to really say, if you meet somebody and they do sound like what we've been talking about over all these episodes in the When Dating Hurts podcast, if they do seem to match up with that, just keep your eyes open because some things are too good to be true. It's one thing to get out in the first month. It's another thing to get out in the ninth month or at the year mark because the more you hang around it, the deeper in you go. When you start going into that cave, it's a lot easier to get out 10 steps in than 10 miles in and getting out is is a horror movie. I mean, just about every one of these is just so bad. You mentioned all these threats. This person is even threatening to take himself out. This person is stalking, showing up in different places, uh, diving all over you, uh, probably getting burner phones and calling you, calling your parents, calling your friends. I mean, these people are going through their toolkit, finding everything they can to try to rope you and pull you and, and lock you back in to that place where you finally got out. So I think that, that uh, the way you serve that up is, is so inspirational and so helpful to people and powerful. That's the whole point of the podcast is here's what it really looks like. And you don't want this to happen to yourself or to a good friend of yours or to your child, anybody you care about. Mm -hmm. And I think 
something to remember too, when you're maybe in one of these relationships is you don't have to allow your niceness or politeness to, to keep you in these situations. And I think a lot of us are taught to give people the benefit of the doubt and to be nice and polite. And I think had I just been a lot more honest and not worried about how I was coming off or how I was going to make them feel, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been in that situation. That's a big part of it too, is listen to those instincts you have. They're there for a reason and don't judge yourself for listening to them. Don't think that you're just being judgmental. And one thing that you wrote in your email to me was about setting boundaries. Mm -hmm. That's something that you've kind of had to learn and get really good at and you are there now. But in those early stages, you may have considered them and then you went, nah, nah, nah. You know, I think think we're going to stay the course here. And then something else would come around that was kind of pinchy or kind of ouchy. And it's like, mm, nah, I don't really like that, but man, let's stay around some more. One thing I asked somebody once who was who was in a relationship that was very abusive, and this person was, was a, a senior in high school, this young woman, and she had a brilliant high school record. You know, her GPA and everything was wonderful, and she did all these things and had all these friends. And this guy had really compromised her quite a lot, and she was accepted into a really nice university in Virginia. So she had everything to look forward to, but she was being dragged down by this guy. And her mother managed to get her to do a phone call with me. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the light came on in my head and I asked her the question, do you think this guy is the best you can do? You are 18 years old. You have an incredible future. You have an incredible past, but you're 18. So you think you're pretty mature and, and all that. And, and you are, but you have a whole lot of things coming up do you think you want to walk through life with this guy who quite frankly treats you in a way that's all about power and control and you are subservient and having to put up with him, hurting your friends in all kinds of ways, making your whole family dislike him badly. They didn't want to take pictures with Mm -hmm. her in her prom outfit standing next to this guy. Mm -hmm. But I just kept saying, ask yourself if this guy's the best you can do. And I didn't know it until about six months later when the mother contacted me again and said, that's, that's the line that turned it. The light came on. It's like, I can do a lot better than this guy. This guy is wrecking me. I think there's maybe for people's loved ones who are watching them go through this, I think they don't realize that some of the things they do say do stick with the person, that they are hearing you. They just might have to do it in their own time. But I think that's a big thing that probably did help her is just she was able to mull that over in her own time of, is this the life I want? And I think that's one of the things to look back on. And for women who maybe are going through it now, life does get better. And it's hard to picture that. It's hard to picture yourself without this person to picture that you could even have a better life. I cannot even imagine the life I would have had had I stayed with him, if I would even still be here. And I mentioned this in my email too, but shortly after I broke up with Taylor, I heard that an acquaintance had been killed by her boyfriend. And I think I had this moment of really like that could have been me. Like, I don't know if during that time, I really thought that could have been me, but that's where it was heading. It was heading, you know, if you're, if you're being violent, if you're threatening to kill me, threatening to kill yourself, that's where it would have gone. And someone said something to me after the fact, which I think helped me remain out of the relationship because it is hard. There was a lot of fear that I would get back into the relationship with him, that he would pull me back in. But he told me that love can be unconditional, but your life is not unconditional. 
-hmm. you can love someone, but you get to decide what you want for your life. And there's a lot more. And like I said, it was, it was a journey to get to where I am now. And I think I talked about this in the email too, is I'm that classic. I, you know, came from a good family, quote unquote. I had a ton of friends. I have a master's degree. I had a good career, still do. And it's not some like isolated wallflower that this happens to. It can happen to anyone. Just knowing that I have the life I do now, it gets there. It's like, I do have a wonderful, loving boyfriend. I have a house I love living in and I have wonderful friends and a good job. And like my life is a lot more sunshiny now. And I'm able to deal with the negative things that come at me a lot easier now as well. Yeah. Life is just way better on the other side. And that's what I hope for any woman who chooses to get out. It's scary. It's hard, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. I'm glad you said all those things. It's absolutely true. And and others who are survivors who I've spoken with have kind of summed it all up the same way. When you're dating somebody and it sounds anything like what you went through, it's that person at that moment, it's that person or no person. Mm-hmm. So that person, it's kind of the bird in the hand. I see a lot of flaws, but I kind of know most of the flaws. So I kind of feel like I know how to deal with it. Plus, I don't have somebody, I don't have a backup here. You know, there's no not somebody else standing over there that I can just move to. And you just have to trust that you'll find that other person and it'll be great. You know, it may take you a couple of tries, but there is somebody out there and who's not going to do that who's not going to put you through it. Somebody who really is a great match for you and somebody who is generous and allows you to make decisions because a lot of these people just take away all of that. I mean, that's all that all goes with it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you feel like you can't decide what we're having to eat or how to even dress. This other person's all over it. Another thing that came out of it is learning to be with myself as well, is learning to actually enjoy my company. Be comfortable. And be comfortable and not constantly have to be around someone else or get validation from other people. And, you know, before I met my significant other I'm with now, I decided I was really going to embrace it. And I think this was part of the journey of getting to liking myself again. I remember August, 2019, I decided I was going to travel and I went to Iceland with a friend. I drove, did a road trip by myself. You know, I went up to New York by myself. I just really was like, you know what, I'm going, this is the life I have and I'm really going to embrace it. And I'm thankful that I was able to get out and truly embrace it. And I think that's been a lot of the healing too, is learning to love yourself. I think about how you keep women from getting here. A lot of it is from an early age, teaching people about mental health and teaching people how to cope with their anxiety or cope with some of the feelings they have and insecurities. Um, And I think if you were in a stronger place. And that's hard when you're in your twenties, especially, but it can happen at any age. It'd be easier to have that confidence to say no, or to stand up to people and not get yourself in that situation. So I think a lot of it does stem from our culture of needing to put more emphasis on mental health from a young age. You can't just imbue somebody with coping skills. That's why people who are 16 to 24 are typically right in that sweet spot where abusers go because Mm -hmm. they find someone like you, Alexandra, who's very nice and very sympathetic and empathetic to what's going on. And they test you out a little bit, see if you'll put up with some things. And you do. You may not like things, but you eventually come around and it's like, oh, wow, you know, you're going to you're going to be just perfect for for uh, what this abuser wants to do. You know, you are a pin cushion. This is perfect. They're just going to bring it little by little. Here's a question with all the different, you know, survivors you've spoken with. 
Yes. Is there anything different you find maybe we could do with abusers? Because they do, as you say, really follow this cookie cutter way of being an abuser. There's a template to what they actually do. Yes. I mentioned in, in my book, but the template is that it's storybook romance, this kind of fairy tale beginning, you know, some version of that. Sometimes it's really over the top. Sometimes it's mild, but still it's, you know, this is working pretty good. This, this person is attractive in a lot of different ways. That's part one. Part two is isolation from friends and family and maybe things that you used to like to do, maybe even your pet, you know, cats are stupid. And it's like, well, I guess he didn't like cats. Well, maybe, you know, I'll ignore my cat because he didn't like cats, even though I used to fall asleep and take a nap next to my cat. You know, I know people like that. But anyhow, yes, number one, storybook romance. Number two, isolation from all these different people. Number three is usually threats of violence in some ways. Could be yelling at you, could be hitting the wall next to where you are, could be things that aren't quite physical yet, but you can see that if you don't do what that person wants you to do or stop doing, that it's going to get worse. And then the next step is actual violence is step four. And it doesn't always happen, but it does happen, which by the way, over the course of time, the violence usually escalates and meaning that it's what was a push one day is a slap another day is a punch another day. And it's maybe something broken another day and followed by convincing apology is part five. So that person says, look, I had a rough upbringing. I was bullied when I was growing up. People used to push me around, yell at me. And when you say stuff to me like that, it reminds me of my mother who was abusive and it just triggered me. And I just kind of lashed out. And unfortunately you were in the way, or it might be, um, look, I've been working in this job all these years and, and I started around the same time as Jim and Jim just got a vice presidency in a nice parking spot and, and better health care. I've been killing myself making Joe over there look good. Jim isn't doing half the stuff I'm doing and, and uh, he gets the promotion. I won't see a promotion for a long time and I'm sorry I lost it. I, I, you know, I shouldn't have hit you. It's, it's never happened to me before. That's convincing apology. Then we go into step one. Let's go out and get something great to eat. Or if the person smashed your phone, here's a brand new iPhone 14 with all the latest gigaws or something, you know, some uh, two, uh, two bouquets. Depending on what level that person's at, it could be buying you a car. They got deep pockets or it just, just could be, for some people, storybook romance after you've gone through that loop a few times, storybook romance could be, first step could be just that we're at peace. He seems to be nice again. Wow, he sure beats yesterday and the day before when he was literally beating me. Sometimes just the fact that we're not at war is actually nice. That's the template. No, that is definitely the template. And I remember him buying me flowers after this horrible fight, buying me flowers for the first time. It was on my money. But I was like, how wonderful he went and got me flowers. He must really love me. Treated Mm -hmm. you really nicely there for a split second. And I think it was a lot of distraction of while he was (laughs) stealing stuff of mine and buying drugs. And, you know, I had so much missing that I did not even realize during the relationship. You know, he was able to distract me, I think, with yelling and God knows what else. But yeah, I even had like family heirlooms go missing. So I was just thinking about that. Oh, no. But yeah, no. they just like took your whole life. <laughs> they got pawned. Mm-hmm. 
one thing I wanted to say, which is not necessarily positive and uplifting, is that trying to fix people who are like this is all but impossible. Mm -hmm. If they commit to some program someplace and go see professionals and put in a lot of time and a lot of effort, there is the possibility they might turn it around. But I will guarantee you, you won't turn it around with that person, mm -hmm. okay? Because every time you put up with what that person does, every time you show up for that next day with that person, you don't mean to be doing this, but you're enabling that person to keep it coming. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. It's you can't, you can't change anyone. You can't, someone can't change you and get you out of the relationship, but you can't change the abuser. And I was an enabler in that relationship, enabling that behavior and saying it was okay. The fact that you showed up, that's all you have to do to tell them it's okay. You don't come out and tell them it's okay, but just the fact that you're around or you just put up with putting on a little extra makeup where the bruises are or you're wearing long sleeve shirts, blouses in the summertime because you're bruised on your arms or legs, mm -hmm. all that stuff is, is uh, unfortunately enabling. It pretty much says give her time and she'll get over it. And I don't know if this fits in either, but you're even talking about covering the bruises and I think that is you know, something maybe people don't realize is when this is happening to me, I don't want people to think poorly of him. And I give him the excuse of maybe it was a bad day or maybe I did something that triggered him. And so you do cover up the bruise and don't tell anyone about it. Still in my head, though, I, I remember telling myself, I never thought I would allow this. Why am I still here? You know, you're having these internal mm -hmm. conversations and still that's not enough to just leave. If you got punched on the first or second date, you'd be out mm -hmm. of there but it doesn't work like that. No. That's kind of the candy stage where everything's really nice and, you know, it's all better stuff, better behavior. And I do think it's a lot of isolating incidents in your head as well. You're not putting it together as a chain. You're saying this is a one-off, this is a one-off, this is a one-off. Well, you put all the one-offs together. Yeah, you wouldn't wish that on anybody. No. no, not at all. I would not. But it's happening to you. Yeah, that's another interesting thing too is you wouldn't want anyone you love going through this as you're going through it. No. No, no, you dive right in there. You say, you can't, you can't let that happen to you. And your mom and dad want to dive in there and save you. I know I would have. There was a lot of anger with them after the fact getting out is like, why didn't you listen to me? You know, and they've realized that. And luckily my sister wasn't in at least a physically abusive relationship. I do wonder if it was emotionally abusive, but my mom learned a lot from me and she wasn't always perfect at it of, I need to be there to support her be there when she gets out and like help her through it. And I think my mom took a different tactic with my sister than me. My sister did get out and this man did not abuse her physically, but there was stalking behavior after the fact. My parents were much better equipped, unfortunately, <laughs> better equipped to deal with it. And it was a different situation. But I think really being there and not being judgmental, I think it's something my parents learned. That's, that's how you save your daughter. You don't save your daughter by forcing her to get out. And honestly, had, had this been presented to me, I would have I would have failed the test first time around. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, it's not something you know how to do. I would have made demands. I would have gotten in my car and driven up there, all kinds of things. I would have gotten it wrong. I'm not going to say that I am any different from any other parent listening to this, except now you know things. If you listen to podcasts like this, uh, read the book, you will know all those things I never knew. Mm -hmm. I might sound like I know what I'm talking about today, but if you listened to me 18 years ago, I didn't know a thimbleful of this. Yeah, that's why these podcasts, this podcast in particular is a great resource, I think, for not just the people going through it, but their loved ones as well. Yes. Alexandra, thank you for giving us this 
insightful interview and telling us about the hardest parts of your life. I mean, it was nine months. It probably felt like 90 years. And it still has residual effects, both bad and good, I think. You're a stronger person because of it. It's clear to me. And so I'm just really thankful for you to stop your world and talk with me and and share with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the time. This concludes part two with Alexandra. The relationship technically lasted a mere nine months, but the after effects will stay with her forever. That's why we point to the warning signs. They might be your only clues to getting out before it's nearly impossible to get out. The more who listen, the more who better understand domestic violence. We see now that When Dating Hurts has become the platform where dating and domestic abuse survivors can tell their entire stories from those early days when they thought it was love through the horrific nightmarish times of emotional manipulation, power and control tactics, and sometimes devastating physical violence. It sneaks up on people. That's how domestic violence traps people. I want to give extra emphatic thanks to the survivors who have come to us and told us in great detail their personal stories of abuse. These generous survivors have afforded us open access into the worst times they have ever endured. Their lives were made miserable by domineering abusers, people who were relentless in the calculated evil they perpetrated specifically to devise invisible prisons around those they told they loved. These stories, although challenging to listen to, are made bearable because we know that each of the survivors will eventually transition from a victim to a survivor. We see the sheer determination and immense courage it sometimes takes for a person to regain freedom. It's important to know that victims can always get help, victims can always get out, and victims can become survivors. Okay, just a quick reminder, the When Dating Hurts book is available on Amazon. It's in paperback and ebook and audiobook forms. If you're a survivor and you have a story we need to hear, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Thank you for listening.